Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode number 120 of ADHD for Smartass Women. Today, I have invited Dr. Elizabeth Sanchez to our podcast. Dr. Sanchez earned her medical degree from the University of Illinois, Chicago, and is currently a family medicine resident at Adventist Health White Memorial in Los Angeles, California. While working with many underserved communities in Chicago and Los Angeles, she found her niche in primary care, where she integrates her passions of caring for underserved communities, public health advocacy, research, and mentorship for the next generation of doctors. Prior to medical school, Dr. Sanchez spent over five years working in translational and clinical research at the UCLA School of Medicine Department of, okay, let me see if I can get through this, cardiothoracic anesthesia. She'll tell me if I said that right. And (laughs) And later at UC Irvine School of Medicine, Department of Anesthesia. Most recently, Dr. Sanchez worked as medical data manager for COVID-19 testing at a San Jose medical startup called Work Health Solutions. She also is dedicated to mentoring medical students with adult ADHD and eliminating the stigma within the medical community. Welcome, Elizabeth. How are you? I am great and wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So did I get all that right? You got all that right. Yeah. Well, except one tiny thing. I will be starting in June of 2021 at Adventist Health White Memorial. Got it. A family medicine residency. What are you doing between now and then? Just uh, working at the company that you mentioned. So are you actually in San Jose? No, I am not. I, I was remote and Actually, this past month, I decided to take a uh, a leave and finally just enjoy my life for a little bit and stop working before I start some heavy duty lifting in the hospital in June. So I was actually remote working and we uh, built up a team of about six people and they seemed to be getting on great. And my friend's company had just kind of expanded. And so she kind of didn't need me anymore. She got a medical director that was going to be there for a long time. And so I was, I felt like I did my duty. 
yeah. to help her and and off I went. So now I'm going to take a vacation and um, enjoy my time with my son and my husband. Well deserved. It must have been exciting too to be part of the research and you know testing and what was going on with COVID nineteen in the middle of all this. Oh, absolutely. And I was talking to a lot of healthcare workers at the time who were uh, being tested daily. And sometimes, you know, they had no symptoms. This was a young population. That's kind of who was asymptomatically carrying it. So it was definitely interesting to see all that unfold. And yeah, just a a, a stressful time for them, I would say. And, And I had to call a lot of the people and tell them their diagnosis. And yeah, that was kind of some people took it very easy and some people took it very like you would think it would be like a, a cancer diagnosis. And oh, really? It's, yeah, it was. And I don't know if it's also like a stigma or there was shame around it for a while. I mean, now it's, it's you know, blown over. But at the beginning, that's what it was like. Well, that fear, right? Because nobody yeah. knew what it was and how serious was it and what did it mean? So. Okay, so can we start with your ADHD story? Basically, oh, I don't know the circumstances around your diagnosis. Yeah, so the short story is that I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until I was in med school and had to take some standardized board exams. But the longer story is that basically uh, growing up in the area I grew up of South Los Angeles and Palmdale, which is kind of a desert rural area, I went along school kind of just doing well because these schools were not necessarily, um, what, what's the right word? Very academic mm-hmm. in a sense. And so them noticing I have ADHD and I have ADHD in attentive type basically. Okay. So it was not something that they were able to detect just based on me presenting myself as a package. I mean, I was on, I was doing all these extracurricular activities, which I think now I realized was a distraction. Also exhibiting my symptoms, I was showing them through doing all these activities. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So my, you know, everyone thought I was great. And I think even earlier at a younger age, you know, I tested into a gifted program. And, you know, so if you were okay and not causing any problems, then no one was going to even think that that was an issue. I didn't take the SAT. I didn't take, I went to community college, so there's no reason for it to come up. And um, as you know, and you've talked to people, the sometimes the later you basically hit a wall Mm -hmm. when you get to standardized test and um, it shows in the timing of it, you can't finish tests. You're kind of all over the place. And then I had this anxiety that came along with it. So that made it even harder. But um, yeah, it it was kind of under the the radar for most of it. And then also, I think that until I was a early 20s, I didn't really have symptoms that I couldn't um, overcome, Mm -hmm. if you will. I couldn't uh, compensate for. It was really in my mid 20s where I started seeing that, you know, hormonal changes were starting to affect me every month. Mm-hmm. You know, right before my period, I would be exhausted and tired and I couldn't think. <laughs> I couldn't remember things that were, you know, d- definitely stored in my long term memory. I couldn't pull them up, if you will. And uh, I was like, something's not right. So, you know, 
I started getting therapy and someone said to me, you, you have probably ADHD. I said, okay. And me, by someone, I mean, actually a, a <laughs> doctor told me this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Someone on straight. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. But was that before medical school? Someone told yeah. you? Oh, really? So about how yeah. old would you have been then? I was in my mid twenties. Oh, okay. Mid twenties, mm-hmm. and then, and then I said, "How you know?" I was in real denial, mm-hmm. and I just talked to someone in their pre med uh, career right now, like yesterday, and he was so forthcoming about his ADHD. Mm-hmm. I do mentor students, and we can get into that later. But basically, I'm like, I was such in a denial phase because I didn't need anyone's help, and at this point. If I did have ADHD, then I would need to get help. It was kind of like a ego, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so at the same time, I was started to see a amazing therapist who I still credit her. And I was trying to get in touch with her, but I can't find her. Mm-hmm. She, um, yeah, we need her started name. doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't even remember her name. There you yeah. go, ADHD. Yeah. Uh, but it's in my email. But cognitive behavioral therapy. She introduced me to that. And we started practicing a lot of changing the negative thoughts into positive thoughts, changing a lot of, because I was in circumstances I didn't like at the time, she, she said, okay, well, meaning I, at that time I was stuck with the MCAT. I couldn't pass. It's not a pass fail, but I couldn't get a score high enough to like push me into med school. And basically she said, you know, well, let's start changing. She noticed I had a lot of negative thoughts and mm-hmm. introduced me to Pema Chodron, which is big meditation. Uh, you're, you're familiar with her. Yeah. And she just loving kindness, providing like support for your brain and saying, it's okay. Let me nourish it. Let me support myself and accept my brain the way it is. And then those kind of things relieved a lot of my anxiety and my internal struggles and my, it's like a constant battle that was going on before uh, of me trying to suppress a certain area. So I was doing all that with her also monitoring my wellness. She started helping with like sleep and making sure I was, you know, doing all kinds of good things for my body, vitamins and so forth. And, and it wasn't so much as she was telling me what to do, but she would just suggest things. And I'm like, okay, this is the time to try it because <laughs> everything else is not working as far as me trying to finish this exam and doing all the things that you're supposed to do from the academic end. Like maybe if I change everything else, then, you know, something has to give. And yeah, I got a, a great improvement in my score. Um, still just wasn't where I needed those to things? be. Just by sleep and therapy. And yeah, I, I mean, I was also in a program to help me do that academically, but I don't feel that it would have happened had I not been taking care of myself. Can I ask you, so grades were never a problem. Again, it's the testing that was the problem. Yeah. And I dissected that. I know exactly why it's because you kind of can digest the chunks of information into chunks. Essentially. I remember being in college and at the beginning it was my make or break analysis of the class, like they would say, you know, at the end, we're going to have a cumulative exam. And I'd be like, oh, no, I'm going to get like a lower grade in this class. But if they had, oh, we're only having, you know, three exams, and it's all based on the material that we just learned. I'm like, okay, I can do that because it was smaller amounts of information. But when it got to the long cumulative 
information, then I felt like it was overwhelming. You know, this is so interesting because I don't know what the deal is with doctors, but I seem to be interviewing all the doctors lately. And Dr. Lola Day, who I just interviewed right before you, and she actually said something so similar to what it is that you're saying. It was the cumulative kind of fill in the blank kind of questions that she always struggled with. So she struggled too with the whole MCAT thing versus if she could write, if it was like essays, then she knew everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember I got an A plus. I I did a program before I started med school where they did an intro to med school year. If I passed that year, they would let me stay in med school. And what it was is you would take the courses with the med, the first year med students, but you would take less. And it was kind of like prove yourself. It's, it's they're called post back programs, and everyone's all the programs are a little bit different. Yeah, this one was at University of Illinois in Chicago, and they give a certain amount of students. You have to be accepted into their med school, and then they give you an opportunity because if they didn't select you for the actual class, they say, well, do this program. We'll pay for, we'll help you get tuition and everything. And I think they paid for books. They gave you like a stipend. So it was not like a total burden or anything, but they said, just pass these courses and you're fine. And my point being that when I took these courses, the tests came in essay format because they were graded different, I suppose. It wasn't because we were short of multiple tests. The med students were taking a multiple test choice test and the, um, oh, it was the PA students that we were taking the class with. They had to write it out. And so we had to write it out so that that teacher can correct them objectively. So I remember I would get like A pluses on those tests Mm -hmm. and I got A plus in the class. Come again that next year when I retook the same exact course with multiple choice exams, I think I got a, what did I end up getting? Like a okay. I mean, what's equivalent to maybe like a B plus. But I was like, okay, but I was killing it the year before. And it was because I could write everything. Yeah. They weren't specifically asking for just one answer. They wanted to know if he knew the process. They wanted to know. So, Which seems like when you're trying to teach students information, isn't that what true learning is? Not if you can check off the right box. Exactly. Exactly. So then I got into med school because I was able to pass the classes and say, yes, you know, standardized test doesn't define me. I get to med school and I have, I'm starting to, I think the first year med school is starting to run out of time with all my exams. I would have about five questions. I just pulled this up earlier today because I have this all written down and I forgot that I would get to, let's say 25 out of 30 questions and they're long, you know, they're not like, what is blank? Um, they're like really long paragraphs. And then I would I would already know that I, I have to guess on the last five, like select A, 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 or whatever letter. So that already like puts you at a way lower score than the rest of the class. And you'd have to do you don't that get any of those. Would run out of because time. I, exactly. And I already had given that my, like I already had put that in my brain, like that's what I'm going to do. That's what wow. I'm going to do. So I would always score barely passing. And it made me so anxious because you barely pass. And it came to the end of the first year and I barely passed. I think it was like by half a point because they add in all your classes and so forth. And I, I was just so relieved. But then the next step was taking like my finals, which were mini board exams. And 
at that time, they pulled me aside and said, Hey, you almost failed. Um, oh. What's going on? And this and that. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, you know, I've had this, I was told at one time that I had ADHD and I don't know, maybe <laughs> they're like, what? They're like, you're kidding me. Are you serious? And I'm like, well, what, you know, and coming from a background, I mean, I'm my first, my family's first generation Mexican American, also first generation college educated. So like this kind of stuff doesn't really come up very often. And if it's not impeding your, your normal life, then you're fine. And especially me, they're like, you're in med school. What kind of, you know, you don't have any issues. So yeah. So I went and got tested finally. And I remember I talked to a psychiatrist and I, I thought I was depressed at that time because I was just homesick. Mm -hmm. And so she put me on antidepressants and then she said, okay, well, we'll get you tested to see if you have learning disabilities. And I, that was just like, what? A disability? That to me, that word was so... Uh, difficult to swallow. So I put it off, put it off. But then finally, I'm like, okay, I got to go do this. So it's like a whole day thing, you do it. And, and he came back and he said, you know, you have inattentive ADHD inattentive type, meaning you space out. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. Isn't that normal? No, it's not. <laughs> not, <laughs> not when you want to focus. And it made sense uh, that when I was young, because I used to daydream all the time. And no one would ever know because it's like an internal dialogue you're having or internal imagination. I had the wildest imagination. I remember sitting through math and then, you know, you just figure out what you need to do when you're in grade school, you know, after the teacher's done lecturing, you're like, okay, sure. Give me the, give me the homework. I'll figure it out. So you learn nothing in class. You'd have to teach yourself after class. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Kind of. Pretty much. Or if, uh, you know, if I had any questions, I could just go ask her. Remember those days when you can ask the question after? Or even I remember, yeah, during tests, I was a kid, can I? And I learned you can ask questions. I was like, oh, I'm going to always ask my teacher something <laughs> and they would help you. So, yeah. But anyway. So you were diagnosed with inattentive ADHD. Second year of med school, was it? Yeah, it was in between first and second. I was about to take some some board exam. And I had to finish some course, they call them shelf exams, if you will, they're board exams for each class, I guess. So the first thing the guy said, the psychologist, he said, go learn all about it. And I said, Okay, fine. And then um, and second of all, get extended time. So I came back to my school, and they were kind of excited that I could get extended time. And they gave me extended time at school made a huge difference. I didn't have to fight to barely pass. I was getting normal scores. And I was like, Oh, my God, if this had been from the beginning, my confidence would have been so much higher. And I would have probably done well, you know, and and could have done well. And anyway, so I'm like, Okay, that's fine. At least I figured out this big weight off my shoulders that this was the issue. MCAT would have been all these other things would have been easier. And, and I think learning to get help at that point was essential. And since I had worked with this therapist so much and she helped me, you know, she basically showed me also how to go about getting help and kind of let my, myself be more vulnerable. Um, I was like, give it to me, give me all the help you can get. And the problem was here in med school, they didn't have an answer. Um, nobody, it was like no tutors, nobody that could really help you with the time on the actual USMLE. So what happened is I applied and they said, what do you mean you applied? 
So I applied for accommodations. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I applied for accommodations through the MBME, which is the board that runs the USMLE exams. We have three USMLE exams that you have to pass in order to get um, licensed. So I applied and they they denied it. And then I thought, well, they don't, they said, because I wasn't diagnosed before the age of 12. So then I wrote this whole long appeal, like, well, this was my story. I, I'm from a low socioeconomic background. And typically, I wouldn't have seen a psychiatrist, because I wasn't acting out and, you know, kind of explained my situation. Yeah. I said that, that should be understandable. So I gave them that and they said, no. Okay, so then I was stuck and basically they told me this has happened before. The school told me this this has happened before. You have to get an attorney. Well, an attorney, come to find out, is about $5,000. Mm. And so you're here. You can't get student loans right now because you your school has stopped because you, you're not passing this board exam. But then you can't move oh, forward without your lawyer. So what do you do? I mean, it really was... If you don't have the means, it's really a stressful situation. Well, and even beyond that, you know, someone whose family can't afford to get testing tutors, therapists, doctors when the kids are little, right? And so they know that they have ADHD. And so Mm -hmm. you're penalizing those kids who don't have those resources, who never knew they had ADHD. And you're going back and saying, oh, but by the way, you have to prove, you have to show me records proving that your ADHD was actually there since childhood. It seems ridiculous. Yes. Yes. And even when I talked to the lawyers, she said, yeah, she goes, they are the most vicious boards I know of. She goes, I I work with the people trying to get accommodations for LSAT, for bar exams, for specialty board exams. But I have never come across anybody that's been so ruthless besides your own kind. And I said, my own kind? Like, yeah, you're the doctors. You guys treat yourselves awful. Mm. And that kind of stuck with me. I'm like, we do. It is so true. We're the worst to our kind. They're supposed to be empathetic and all encompassing, holistic, treat the whole patient. And yet we were the same people saying, no, it's not even possible. And I understand that there was probably back before time, before 20 years ago, maybe cheating a lot of, you know, people doing bad things to mess it up for the real people who are. It probably happened one time and there was a big lawsuit about it. And then, you know, they have all these rules. I know, I know. And it's, it's ridiculous since, I mean, the National Institute of Health, the American Medical Association, the U.S. Surgeon General, the American Association of Psychiatry, the U.S. Department of Education, they all are like, yeah, ADHD, it's a real neurobiological condition, yet the NBME is preventing you from getting more time. I mean, it it makes no sense. Right. And I think, I mean, I think it's actually all the bad things I'm saying that something bad has happened is probably even happening now. If you look into the scandal that happened at USC, a lot of their kids were getting special accommodations when they didn't need them. So, yeah, but I won't delve into that. That's a whole other. Is that that really true? I mean, clearly we know that they were paying, but they were getting accommodations when they didn't need them? Oh, yeah. I've listened to these FBI transcripts twice because I I kind of Uh was grossed out by that part of it. They would get them a proctor. Well, first they would get them tested with whoever they needed to get tested. And that person, you know, knew what to do. And then they would get them a special room 
with a special proctor. And then the proctor was also in on it. He would bubble in the right SAT scores, the right SAT answers, sorry, to get the appropriate score. And he knew it down to a science where he would be able to, I don't want this person to get like the top 90th percentile, but I'll have him get like maybe the 89th percentile or something, which I don't know what it translates in scores. That's why I'm saying using percentiles, but um, just so it doesn't look fishy. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, well, that's why people are so, you know, you get to medical school and they think we're just making that up. Like, no. And even you show the evidence, like, look, this is before accommodations in med school. This is after. They're like, no. And what got me even more is that I saw a lot of, a lot of people go through this path and then the MBME kind of threw them on the side, like, no, just reject them. And as soon as you got an attorney, Uh. I, I got, it took months and months and months for me to get a response from them myself. I got an attorney within two weeks. They had an answer. Congratulations. We have given you, you know, not what I wanted. I wanted, I think the doctor said to get to double time and they gave me 1.25. The lawyer said, congrats, because this is a hard case to deal with and you should just take it and run. Like, okay. So it gave me a little time to breathe on the test. But as you know, it's you know, it's not showing your potential. It's showing more like, can you finish the test for me? And a lot of other ADHD people, yeah, that's what they try to do. They just try to finish it. And um, you get really tired and you get slower and you can't even have all the break time you you need. You're kind of just like stuck in that room. But um, yeah, it just kind of didn't sit well with me when when that happened. Um, But I said, I'll come back to it later. And I've been mentoring students probably ever since fourth year of med school, like just talking, it started as talking to students just because I wanted to learn more about myself and my issues and see if anybody else went through it. And I met a lot of students here at UCLA locally when I moved back after med school. And I'm like, wait, some were ahead of me and some were behind, um, years behind, meaning in education. Like some had gone on to residency and some still are at UCLA finishing their medical degrees, but a lot of these are minorities. And what I'm wondering, I'm like, why are they putting all this money into recruiting more minorities when they're already in med school? A lot of them keep them in, can't even get through. Yeah, exactly. Like, does the government not know that all these minorities are trying to recruit score worse on on a standardized test might be due to undiagnosed issues. Maybe not. Maybe, you know, some, you can help them with their study tactics and voila, but a lot of them, I keep coming across, I've been seeing a lot of the same, same pattern. It's like first generation. It kind of makes sense Um, right? because immigrant families, the fact that they're willing to, you know, leave where they are, come over and start. I mean, I, they probably are ADHD. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And no one notices that their family's different than them. So they're just kind of like, it's normal. I think you're the first one that brought that up. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's something that to be said about it, it makes total sense. If you're an immigrant, you had to already have some kind of <laughs> uh, risk-taking behavior, if you will. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you were so kind. You told your background story and I I just found it so fascinating. And in your story, you said that um, 
you successfully passed steps one, two, and three for, you know, medical school. While it took more months of preparation than most, my new approach to studying has rewarded me with a new sense of self-confidence. So what was that new approach? What did you learn about yourself as far as how you best learn? That's a good question. So I think one of the things I wanted to address, I was thinking about when I was thinking about this part is that, you know, we're supposed to not have a good memory, but I think if you practice it, you can have a really good memory. And I used, I surprised myself using this stack uh, called Anki note cards. And it's like a study A-N-K-I. And they're, they're note cards? Yeah, but they're based off spaced out repetition based on some algorithm that someone came up with based on how memories are created. So right when you're about to forget it, it brings it up again. So it's based on an algorithm. It's not just like review 100 and then go back and review the same 100 and over and over. So So it's like if you already know it. Yeah. Are these physical note cards or are we talking this is an online program? An online program that's free. Wow. And okay. I, I mean, yeah, a lot of people know about it. Med students know about it. This guy at Stanford has really publicized how much to use it. And I also talked to many tutors. And I think the tutors that helped me the most were the ones that, you know, kind of could give me all these hacks, mm-hmm. you know, because this improves your time a lot by having little facts memorized, not everything just the little facts that they're going to test you on, like which medication is used for hypertension, what's the first line, uh, what's the the name of it, or what's the, the mechanism, and stuff like that that was actually really, really helpful. I also had a tutor that embraced kind of my learning style, which is a lot of drawing, drawing out the processes. And that takes a long time. Nobody wants to see, like a lot of students can just look at a a book and read it and somehow regurgitate it on the actual test. But for me, if I learn the whole process, then I I have knowledge. I have some deep long-term memories there. So I'm going to credit, I'm pretty sure ADHD people can like resonate with the whole memory thing. Like once they know something, they know it, (laughs) they know it like deep. And let's see, the other thing that was, I would say helpful is I, picked their brain and by say their brain. So my tutors all got like top scores. It's like a 265 is basically Mm -hmm. only 99th percentile would get that. And I I would pick their brains. Wait, can you just tell me your thought process? Mm. And what I came to realize, and not all of them were were like, they're like, what? What do you want? No, just literally tell me from the beginning, what are you thinking? when you see that word and what are you thinking when you see that word? And it was a very lengthy process. And one, one of my tutors, she, she was great, but she would actually tell me, and I'm like, so you're not even, what I realized is they're not even, you know, you're not even going through the ADHD thoughts of like possibly confusing yourself. You have to like get rid of all the the side thoughts, the side minutia. Yeah. You saw it somewhere. You thought you're trying to like make, connect dots. And this is not about that. This is just stick to the basics. <laughs> don't be creative. Do not be, <laughs> you know, don't think outside the box. Think like a robot. And it's the most boring thing to an ADHD person. But that's what you have to do. And 
I, I swear I went into feeling like a zombie robot when I took my test and that's when I did the best and I passed. <laughs> so it's like no creativity was involved. It's just very mundane. I think that's why ADHD people struggle with standardized tests. It's the most horrible thing to just sit in front of a computer for 18 hours. Yeah. And you know, my daughter just took the LSAT and she studied for a good year. And I mean, really studied. I was just impressed, you know, with how she was able to just focus on that. But she got stuck. And there was a period of I don't know how many months where she could not budge her score at all. I think she's probably ADHD. You know, we're in the process of getting her tested because what she realized is just like you said, when there were no time constraints, she could score in the 99th percentile. But the minute there was a time constraint, she would get up in her head and she would start questioning, you know, these multiple choice answers and could it be this? And so she was wasting all this time getting in all that. It's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And what you realize is, you know, get some of those people that score in the 99th percentile. My uh, husband has an uncle who's got like 99th percentile on the uh, California bar exam and he was called over. I'm like, Bob, can you please tell me what you're thinking? We've had these conversations because I was struggling with standardized tests and he's just like, well, it's just like a formula. And really you just got to stick to the basics of it. You can't go with your gut. (laughs) Yeah. And you have to learn how to trust that because, but it doesn't fit our, our, the way we think. So kudos to her. I don't know what she scored, what, you know, keep her head up. She has, the only thing she can gain is more knowledge. So that's how I I had to look at it. And I'm like, these are going to be things that will help her forever. And for me, at least with her, with law, I noticed there's no shame if you don't pass the bar the first time. (laughs) I was just listening to Michelle Obama's, no, there isn't. I'm like, but for us. Wait, did Michelle Obama not pass the bar the first time? She did not. Oh my but God. Barack well, if she did. didn't I know, pass it, whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, then there's other people, JFK and all this stuff. Right. Well, he had ADHD. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. He was like a C student. Yeah. Totally ADHD. So personable. Okay. Yeah. See, we hear about his Addison's, but not his ADHD. Exactly. <laughs> so basically, for the med students, uh, they get shamed. Mm. You get like a scarlet letter on you. Does everybody know? Um, no, they don't know. But then what happens is we go into what's called the match, which I kind of told you about. You just did that, right? I just did that. But the match is basically a big application process. It starts with the ERA's application. You put in your applications to your specialty and to you put your letters of rec with all your CV. And then programs get about a thousand applications, let's just say. So if you're like an employer and you get a thousand applications, you look for the easier way to filter out the candidates you you want to filter, right? So these exams become the ticket to getting your interviews. And the interviews become, let's say you get 10 interviews and you rank 10 programs or you get 20 interviews and rank 20 programs. So that improves your chances of matching. And if you don't get any interviews because they didn't like that you failed one time, which I did. Which is so insane because it has nothing to do with intelligence. It's true. And is there any change that's, I mean, are they stuck? Because even with like the, um, the SATs, there's a lot of universities that are saying we're not going to accept them anymore because we realize it doesn't matter. Are they starting to do any of that or even thinking about it in medical school? Yeah, the first part, 
they're going to pass fail. So step one has just moved to pass fail, but there's still step two. So I'm just wondering, it's not really the action of within the med school, it's the residency at the level of the residency and the level mm. of the residency directors. Are they making changes to the way they screen applications, to the way they invite people? So, you know, they just want to, yeah, I mean, and why really, if they, they don't change for them, them like, right? Exactly. Exactly. They don't need to. So I feel like they're just going to switch the focus from step one to step two. And then step three, you take when you're an intern. So that doesn't really matter as much. And, but I mean, I took step three so I could secure more interviews because they would have said, well, you failed one time, you're going to fail step three. And so I'm like, no, I'm not. I've overcome this. And, you know, so you really have overcome it. Yeah, I would say I know how to study, but I overcame the USMLE and I want to speak out about it now because I think there's such a stigma. The more people I meet that have this ADHD issue, some people can't fight against. And it's not even a fight. It's just getting a lawyer and it's, mm. they don't have $5,000 to throw, like put down and, and get a lawyer to advocate for them. So I think that. Hey, that would yeah. be a great nonprofit idea, huh? That's what I was, yes, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was like, is there any lawyers that want to help? Because- yeah, pro bono, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Some better. That is really interesting. Okay, so one of the things that you're now a doctor, you got through, you got this residency, which it sounds like you really wanted this one, right? Yeah, yeah, I get to stay home, stay by my hometown and happy, happy as can be. And you say that you're dedicated to mentoring medical students with ADHD and eliminating the stigma around it um, within the medical community. Like, how do you do that? I don't know, but I'm dedicated (laughs) to doing it. I just started on this whole new path of empowerment with your podcast. Kid you not, the first podcast I listened to was with Diana Mercado. And she went through a similar story. And I said, I said, what are the odds of this? And honestly, the last time I had visited the ADHD literature was when I was going through this hard time in medical school. And it's actually changed so much within the past six years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really has. So you're talking positive about it, which I love, and making connections with people, which is what we thrive off of. And then you've opened up um, me to like new things like Dr. Hallowell. Like, okay, his older book was so behind, like, it had some catching up to do years like ago. Yeah. And that's, that's a long time. And I read that one initially when I was diagnosed officially. And that was still relative to most ADHD, you know, literature. I don't think you'd call it literature, books, <laughs> teaching. <laughs> it was very strength focused at the time. And even five years ago, it was very strength focused compared to everything else that's out there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Versus his so 2.0 I- is amazing. Yeah. And I think his 2.0 is amazing. Like we don't have a disability, but you have to say that in med, like for standardized tests, which is so bizarre, but having this ability to focus on many things, and that's actually just our problem and our gift of hyper-focusing on too many things. And then you don't get anything done because you don't know where to channel your focus. (laughs) It's hard to channel it. Um, So I mean, I, I'm all about this this new way of helping. And, and I think the mentoring the students and me speaking out, just like Diana Mercado, kid you not, I have not heard anybody else talk about it. 
Wow. Like that. And I called her and I commended her. And then she said, I know med students are emailing me from other places. So oh my gosh. She I wants to. Yeah. Yeah. You've started this because oh my gosh, nobody had talked about it. Yeah. And she obviously felt some kind of connection or uh, like comfort level with you and with the podcast. And maybe it's because it's also for women. It's just, you know, people are so open and raw that mm-hmm. she came on here and talked about it. And it was, it, it, it needed to be done. So she opened up a, a door there. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. It's about getting visible and talking about it because every single time you talk about it, someone hears you and says, oh my God, that's my story. And sometimes they don't even realize it's their story until you start talking about it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They're like, what? Somebody else went through it. So Dr. Lola Day said something so interesting to me today, which I was actually, did I already ask this question? Uh, not sure. Okay. <laughs> not sure. So what she said is that her mentor told her when she said to her, or he said to her, I think it was a she, when she said to her, I think you might have ADHD. You should go get tested. And she was like, no, I don't have ADHD. And what her mentor told her is 30% of doctors have ADHD. Have you seen that? That's crazy to me. That is crazy, but it would make sense because you join it because it's so much going on that you, I thought, okay, I'll never get bored. Ah. And you get to move around all day once you can get past the, the learning part, right? The book part. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Which I don't think it's obviously the best way that the curriculum is being done. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can't believe that it's 30%. So yeah, I guess kind of having people like Dr. Hallowell talk about himself. Mm-hmm. And I think more people will come out and, and kind of Dr. Rady, the stigma around it. There's a bunch. So that's really, those are the only people I follow. I'm kind of like, if you don't have ADHD yourself, I don't care what medical credentials you have. You need that to understand. And there are so many doctors now, you know, that are experts in ADHD that are speaking out about it. So, yeah, no, it's, it's true. You want them to have it too. Cause then they'll be like, eh, can't you just, you know, over- exactly overcome it or ignore it. And yeah. And the other thing, I think the other strength now that I'm thinking about with the ADHD, well, there's a lot of strengths that you bring to the table as an ADHD doctor. But I think that I learned so much about wellness because taking care of yourself is so important in medical field. You can't help yourself. You can't help others. And it takes people so long to learn that they'll, you know, put off sleep, nutrition, we eat the worst foods at conferences. They, you know, they'll serve Mm -hmm. pizza. They'll serve like the most brain draining things that you could possibly do. We don't move around. They can make you sit for eight hours. You're like, it's like a very sedentary training that you have very sedentary and it's not the best. Uh, I was always moving. I was always exercising, trying to eat healthy, even in med school, there was ways to do it low. I had, you know, very little money, but you, I found like farmer's markets and certain things that were like low cost. And I could just stack up on, mm-hmm. on carrots versus a bunch of chips. And I still have friends, no offense, but they eat pretty bad. Luckily they don't have ADHD, but I've had to do it because otherwise I'd be a mess. So, and I mean, isn't medical care kind of like that anyway, where it's forget about the prevention, here's a drug, you know, we can fix it this way. I mean, we just generally, I I feel like we wait so long to, uh, there's no prevention typically. I mean, I think so few doctors that I know have ever talked to me about nutrition or fitness or certainly not mindfulness or meditation or anything like that. You're absolutely right. So 
and that's another thing Dr. Mercado and I talked about. Um, she was saying that, you know, talking about the specialties, we both picked family medicine, but it was a lot of it, you know, is based on prevention and the whole person and not a lot of specialties are open to that, especially obviously if you're a surgeon, you know, Mm. you're fixing the pathology that has already manifested. If you are, you know, there's just, we focus so much on the manifestation of the physical ailment already, but we want to, as a family medicine, you always want to look at the preventative side and not even preventative side, but if you're also healthy, I want you to thrive, not just survive. I mean, that's not the point of living, right? <laughs> you know, you want to live a, your, your best life, which is kind of your podcast is right. Living your best life. Yeah. I mean, it really depends on the specialty, but yet, you know, oh, still, I see all my colleagues like ADHD. Oh, well, you know, it's kind of like, don't talk about it. I was even advised not to say anything until I was forced to because they were saying that um, it was going to affect my employment. Oh, and I my. thought, they can't ask you on your employment. And I would know better if you <laughs> if you asked me. I was like, that's none of your business if I have any psychiatric history for my employment. Oh, and that's so bad because I just, if we know what the strengths of ADHD are, I can only imagine that the best doctors have ADHD, you know, again, they're willing, I mean, they're able to make all those connections and, you know, integrate it all. And, ah, yeah, absolutely. And, and think outside the box. And, and right now it's like kind of whoever thinks inside the box will be good. And so, um, I have a mentor in med school who told me, you know, just remember you have to work in the system to work on the system. I said, okay, fine. (laughs) He was great. Yeah. But I'm like, okay, okay. So I've been doing that. I do my part. And so I think, I also think that's why we heard Dr. Mercado talk about her story now and not earlier. And even me, I waited till I was done with the US MLEs. So I I didn't want any retaliation from any, Mm -hmm. any kind of a group. Okay, I want you to talk to us because this sounds so fascinating to me. You have done so much. I mean, I I look at your CV, I told you this, and oh my gosh, I just can't believe how much you've done. And one of the things that you shared, and I'd love you to share it on this podcast, is about the Flying Samaritans. What was that? UCLA Flying Samaritans? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, they're this great little organization that um, has basically the undergrad just basically undergrad students, pre-med students, has set up a clinic in Tijuana, Mexico, all by themselves, all through donations, all through free labor, if you will. They'll solicit people like me to come help and see patients there in this little town. And so the little town has two buildings, three actually, a pharmacy, a dental office, and then a medical office. And the undergraduate students themselves will pick you up and take you to the border. Then they have vans and the vans shuttle you to this little town. And the, the community knows every month they've, they are going to show up and they may have also donations for the town. They may have like, you know, just hand-me-downs and stuff like that, along with some good medical care. So everybody comes in and I got some good experience there looking, you know, seeing some pathologies and you don't have all the meds. So you have to kind of just pick what was donated out of what was donated and then figure out what the best treatment is. And kind of like rural medicine at at a even slimmer level so it's very interesting and so what what exactly do they do 
they, well, you see patients, the rural town, they don't have, if you've been down to certain rural parts of Tijuana, they don't have any doctors, they don't have any, they don't have any funds to get any healthcare. So us coming, all the healthcare providers that the UCLA Samaritans, I guess, employ to come down there, mm-hmm. then they, they're they the ones that see it. So I was a participant. I was not a undergraduate UCLA Samaritan, just so, so you know, I'm, I was uh, on the healthcare provider side. And I mean, I just was amazed at how they organize everything. And because of all the people giving their time, all the healthcare providers giving their time, they're able to provide the clinic, but they do all the logistics. So it's a great organization. So you were doing uh, tattoo removal? Oh, that was at a different place. I was at Homeboy Industries. Oh, see, you've so, been so much. And okay. I actually, connected. honestly, <laughs> they're not connected. So my mentor, who's in family medicine, Dr. Mm-hmm. Margarita Luisa, um, who has also connected me with all the, a lot of the UCLA med students that have the learning disabilities or ADHD. Mm-hmm. Basically she did all, she does all this. And that's why I was able and fortunate to kind of be her pupil, if you will, and just learn and absorb everything. She's pretty amazing. And she, part of her month is going to homeboy industries and donating her time for, um, some of these gang members who want to change their lives. They have tattoos on their faces and hands. Okay. No one's going to employ them. So this part of homeboy industries does tattoo removal. Are you familiar with homeboy industries? No. So it's a a great organization for ex gang members. They, Dr. What's his name? Father Greg Boyle is the one who started it. And it's a building in East LA and, you go there and it's all employees. Uh, it's all ex-gang member employees that work in the in the cafeteria. They have a cafeteria component. They have um, services for you to get like a resume done. You just walk in and it's a one-stop shop for them. They can get, they probably will help you with housing. They'll help you connect you back into the community. They're probably a great ADHD you. too. Yeah, probably. <laughs> and on top of it, if you have tattoos that you have on your face and hands and it makes it difficult, then they're going to help you. And it doesn't matter if it's even white power. You see that. and Oh, jeez. Yeah. So you remove anything. And so since Dr. Margarita Luisa did this, I, I was fortunate enough to come along with her and do some sessions and talk to these guys. And they really want to make a change. So. <sighs> That's just, it's heartwarming, actually. (laughs) So it is, it is. Before I let you go, can you tell me fairly briefly, what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is for you? Wellness and balance. That really, I thought you were going to ask me what my favorite hack was. (laughs) I was like, I got that one because it's hard to say what's your favorite, what's your ultimate ADHD person. It is. But I narrowed it down. I think wellness and balance. I agree. I think that is totally key. Okay. So then what's the hack? I was going to tell you something that you might like. The Amazon, Amazon has this Peloton desk accessory where you can do your work. On the Peloton? On the, on the Peloton bike. I know you're a fan. Yeah. So I just found it online. It's like, 50 bucks or something, but it's well worth it. Cause now I don't have to sit and type, do anything. I cycle. Oh my gosh. I love that. Will you <laughs> send me the link so I can put it in the show notes? 
I will. I will. I was actually looking at things like that, you know, (laughs) because I realized I can't really do the Peloton unless I'm listening to something that I, you know, I can't listen to them. I feel like that's a waste of time. (laughs) Yeah. And so you get off very productive. (laughs) Yes. I love it. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, you're going to love it. Elizabeth, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Can they reach out to you? Absolutely. So I started a new email, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Keller. Keller? And it's Keller because, yeah, so that's my husband's name. And uh, I have to switch over my license and all that stuff. But so that's why I don't use that email that much. Is that okay? Or Yeah, Dr. Elizabeth Keller at? At gmail.com. Sorry. Dr. Elizabeth Keller at gmail.com. That's the important part, you know, that we finish the email. (laughs) Exactly. I'm like, don't you know? Aren't you a mind reader? (laughs) No, but I know your mind. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Next. (laughs) Anyway, Dr. Sanchez, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. That was so fun. So interesting. And I just really appreciate you. I appreciate you. Do we go get a martini now? (laughs) Actually, I'm going to go get my COVID shot now. Oh, okay. (laughs) Two hours in the car, but I'm going to go get my COVID shot. And maybe after that, a martini. Okay, awesome. (laughs) Well-deserved. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Elizabeth, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really help in that regard. I also have a special podcast index for you. We are now at 120 episodes, so there's so much content. And you know, I initially created this podcast index for me because I couldn't remember what have we talked about, what have we not talked about. So I wanted everything in one place that had to do with emotions, one place that had to do with the diagnosis or flipping your ADHD mindset from weakness to strength focused. Now you can go to our podcast index and it's all there organized by topic. You can find the podcast index at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash podcast index. One more thing. If you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview or a topic idea for this podcast, leave me an audio message on my podcast page at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smart Ass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.